This is The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. Hey, Thomas, let me ask you a question. Many of our listeners have employer-based health insurance. What do you think one of the most expensive line items there is? How about heart attack? No. Really? Cancer? It's not cancer. (laughs) Oh, I know kidney dialysis is expensive. That is expensive, but that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, you got me, and we're on a time clock. What is it? (laughs) Lack of exercise and movement. We don't move enough. We don't exercise enough. Wow. So that becomes the most expensive thing to cover? Absolutely. That is one of the leading, if not the most expensive items for employers to cover. Well, Steve, we have just the expert, Dr. Salman Bai. He is in the neurology department at UT Southwestern Medical Center and is on the faculty of an incredible research and clinical facility at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital of Dallas called the Institute of Exercise and Environmental Medicine. He knows muscles. How did you initially get involved in the study and treatment of muscles? That's a great question, and I think a very important one. Uh, first, how I got into the, the muscle realm is that I'm just fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by our drive as humans to move. And unfortunately, our society is almost pushing against that. Moving is essential to our well-being and survival. And when muscle doesn't function well, patients and their families have a difficult road ahead of them. And I'm inspired by these patients and the resolve to improve. Some of these muscle diseases really require highly specialized care which in other words means that care outside of these highly specialized centers is inadequate. So I hope to shed light on these diseases and improve care for these patients. Let me ask you for our listeners, you know, they're tuning in and saying, well, what should we know about our muscles or muscle disorders? What would you say to our listeners? I would say one, move. Moving is a very important part of who we are. And, you know, sitting is the new smoking, as they say. Steve, did you hear that? Yeah, that's what I was trying to tell you at the outset of the show. He hit the nail on the head. Sitting is the new smoking. There is a tweetable. I think maybe we even should get a Twitter account so that we could tweet that. (laughs) I think that's a great idea. And I got to tell you, Thomas, I was born and raised in Virginia. So I'm not proud of the fact that Virginia, as you know, the money crop was raising tobacco. When I was a young kid, whoo. I was in some of those smoke-filled rooms. Yeah, and airplanes, too. Oh, yeah. Thomas, I'm so old, I remember the smokers sat in the back of the airplane and smoked, and you really thought that smoke wasn't going to get up front? Uh, (laughs) Well, listen, you've got our attention, Dr. Bai. This is obviously a showstopper. This is a big point. No question about it. Movement, exercise, I can't wait to hear more. And, you know, sitting is the new smoking, as they say. And so I think part of that understanding is coming from the fact that muscles are more complicated than we once thought. Clearly, we need them to move. But interestingly, they also communicate with the rest of the body. Did you know that? Right? They talk to your brain, your heart, your liver, everywhere. 
So when we exercise, our muscles release factors that help us have some of the benefits of exercise. And of course, this is a plug for exercise, which I love and something that we should all be doing. And now when muscle doesn't work as it's supposed to, patients and people are at risk for chronic conditions like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, right? Very common things that then lead to heart attacks and strokes. So it's important for us to know that muscle is key in helping prevent some of these chronic conditions. You know, I love what you said, that sound bite, that sitting is the new smoking. So true. When you speak of moving and exercise, some people may think, I've got to go to the gym. I've got to get on the treadmill. But you can do things at work, can't you? Like stand at your desk. Absolutely. I'm all for having breaks to move. And moving can just be walking. Going and getting up to get your water. Going to sit outside to get some sun. Eat your food there. Uh, Going for a walking meeting. Stretching at your desk. Stretching next to your desk. All of these different ways are there to incorporate exercise. I think the problem we run into as a society is that we say, I have 24 hours in a day, I have to block off 30 minutes of uninterrupted exercise time. And that's just not true, and sometimes it's not even possible with our busy schedules. What I would say is that exercise and movement should be part of our daily routine. In the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, before sleep, it should just be a given. And I think breaking it up that way can make it easier to get in some of that exercise. You know, it's fascinating to me, and Thomas and I have commented on this. We've had many physicians on this show, and whether we're talking about obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular, now muscles, it all comes back one common denominator. Exercise and movement is a good thing. So for the future of muscle disorders, do you see any special type of treatment coming down the road? Absolutely. So, you know, clearly exercise is treatment, right? Food and exercise are our medicine, Uh, but we can't put those in pills. So those are hard earned, but we also have several muscle diseases, some of which I focus on like muscle inflammation or when muscles don't produce energy well. And so when you're looking at muscle disorders and the future of them, the growth and interest of them is increasing and effective treatments are being developed. We'll get better at diagnosing and treating these conditions. And just like all of medicine, I think muscle diseases will benefit. We will have more precision medicine, meaning medicine that's specific for each patient, medicine that's specific for the current state of the disease in each patient, and that will lead to better outcomes. You know, I think we can look for ways that we can move to. One of my favorite pictures was taken where there was a workout on the top floor of an office building. And it showed many of the people after work in their workout clothes rather than taking the stairs, riding the escalator up to the gym uh, where they were going to work out. So I agree with you on movement. I know another thing, uh, and Thomas was chatting with me about this before we started this session. He's done some research, and this will help save employers money. So I'm going to let Thomas ask you some questions about the importance of having a healthy workforce to reduce your medical expense. Yeah, I was doing some work with a group that was analyzing data basically to help employers save money on their group insurance plans. And the number one cost to employers when they write the checks for health insurance 
is musculoskeletal issues. I'm sure that's no surprise to you. Absolutely. And when you're taking a look at how often we're sitting, our poor ergonomics, and the lack of exercise, we eventually, you might even notice when people are sitting at the computer, they become more and more hunched over time. Uh, Their posture gets poor. And that carries out into day-to-day life. And these effects can then lead to musculoskeletal injuries, complaints, and chronic pain. And we're listening to an incredible interview with Dr. Salman Bai. He is on the faculty of the Institute of Exercise and Environmental Medicine at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital, Dallas, an institute that is on the cutting edge of medical research and treatment. Proud to have it right here in the Metroplex. More tweetables from Dr. Bai next on the Human Side of Healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. If you didn't hear the last segment, we're talking with Dr. Salman Bai. He's in the neurology department at UT Southwestern Medical Center and also is on the faculty of the Institute of Exercise and Environmental Medicine at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital, Dallas. Dr. Bai had a showstopper last segment when he said sitting is the new smoking as far as our health is concerned. So we're going to pick it up with more of Steve Love and Dr. Salman Bai. So, Dr. Bai, what happens in the deterioration when you sit over a period of time? That's a great important point that you're making there. When people are at their workplace sedentary, just sitting around working, it's very easy to get caught up in your work and sit there for hours without moving. And over time, you may notice that your posture worsens, you're more hunched over, you start to get aches and pains. And that doesn't just stop at the workplace, right? When you get home, when you get out of your car, you still hurt. And that may prevent you from exercising in the future, or it may become a habit of being sedentary, of not moving. Over time, that leads to multiple health complaints that eventually affect the workplace, right? If you're not in the right state of mind, if you're in pain, if you're hurting, you won't be working optimally at work. And I think that is a cost to everybody, right? We want to be efficient and effective at what we do and not exercising, I think, contributes to that. You made a very bold statement earlier with Steve. You said that sitting is the new smoking. Now, I came up all of my life. Steve did, too. Smoking is bad. Well, actually, when we were kids, smoking was still kind of in vogue, and everybody did it, and people were in smoke-filled rooms, and it wasn't very pleasant to be around. Steve, could you imagine if we were having to do that today? (laughs) It's unbelievable. I actually remember when they had tobacco products on TV, and one commercial, and I won't name the cigarette brand, a group of doctors came out and said, this is the cigarettes we smoke. Doctors were actually advertising to smoke cigarettes. Thankfully, that's before my time. (laughs) So if smoking is a 10, let's just say that smoking as bad for you is a 10. What is chronic sitting? That's a a tough question there. You know, I think in the short term, we all think that it's a zero, right? And we know that smoking is smoking, right? There's no replacement for how bad smoking is, and we don't want to, to push that at all. And, but we know that when we smoke, we can clearly see the changes. On the flip side, when we don't exercise, I think we don't ding ourselves as much. 
right? We're just going about our day not doing something. So it's easy to forget about it. Over time, I think that lack of exercise that just started at a zero turns into a 10. And that's the problem with these chronic conditions. When you don't see them happening day to day, it shows up at your front door as a stroke or a heart attack. And then unfortunately, it's too late. And so my message to, to the listeners here is that your muscles play a key role in maintaining the health of your whole body. So why not give them a good push and keep them moving, keep exercising? This is absolutely huge. The way that you're saying this is incredible. So again, we know the damages of smoking. And yet every day people choose to put one of those things in their mouth and inhale that stuff into their body. And we know that over time, cancer and heart disease are the likely outcome. What you're saying is this chronic sitting, not moving our bodies over an extended period of time, can cause heart disease and probably cancer and a number of other systemic issues. That's right. And, you know, before I got to muscle, uh, and I still am a neurologist, and we, we consider muscle to be part of that realm as well, and uh, brain health is such a, a key, important part of our day-to-day life. And I think that just speaks to mental health uh, from the brain standpoint, how important it is, but also brain health in terms of dementia, stroke risk. All of these factors are thought to be mitigated at least somewhat, somewhat improved by exercise. And some of that may be related to what muscle is releasing to help mediate that benefit. What type of movement and how much movement are you talking about? I know it's been the pandemic, but assuming people are back at the office, you get a cup of coffee, you go to your desk, you do all these things, you're in a meeting, the phone rings, how much movement should you do, when should you do it, etc.? Yeah, you know, it's a hard question as well because, you know, one, before I keep going, of course you should talk to your doctor and make sure it's okay for you, but for the most part, it is okay for everybody then you get into this thing of, well, how much exercise, how intense exercise should be, and that's individual as well. You know, the general guideline here is 30 minutes a day, five days a week. That doesn't have to be 30 minutes in one chunk. It can be 10 minutes three times a day. We also have this somewhat arbitrary cutoff of 10,000 steps a day. I like to take a different approach. Uh, I want people to focus on moving multiple times a day so that they feel like they're being refreshed, And if they're up for it, to get their heart rate up. Now, we don't all have heart rate monitors, but a simple way is is if your heart rate is low, you're able to hold a conversation just like this. If you're picking it up, getting into the aerobic zone, it's a little harder to talk. Perhaps you can get short bursts out, a sentence, a paragraph, and that's good. That's a good place to work out your heart. And then for the more athletic folks or the more conditioned folks, you get into the anaerobic zone where you're sprinting or going fast, and that's hard to talk. You can say a word, and that means your heart rate is really high. Those are all different zones of exercise, and dependent on what your goals are, those are different approaches that you can have. Do you have to have a gym to do this type of exercise? We're very social beings, right? It's, it's, it's almost hard to get out by yourself and exercise nowadays, given the, the circumstances around us. And obviously going to a gym is difficult, too, given how widespread COVID is and how it may not be safe. But I think group exercise, whether it's virtually, is great for accountability, uh, right? If your buddy tells you we're going to a gym class at 7 in the morning or we're going to get on FaceTime together and exercise together, I think that's a great way to make sure that you're exercising. It also is very motivating. This exercise can happen at the home through various apps on your phone. 
It can happen through videos online, or it can happen at the gym one day when it's safe to go. So what a great point about the social aspect. But what about hardware or things that we could bring home, such as dumbbells? What type of equipment can we use at home to help us move and exercise? You know, it's funny because I think about that a lot. I I like to consider myself athletic in some sense. I've gotten older, so I'm not what I used to be, and I I love exercise. And so when I started doing bodyweight exercise, uh, I was wondering, why am I so sore? Uh, Why am I feeling this more than I thought I would? And it made me realize that stability exercises, where you're just holding positions, uh, doing simple movements just with your body, are enough to exercise. Right, you'll get benefit from that, especially if you do it multiple times. Right? Doing two push-ups, you may not feel anything, but if you did 20, 40, 60 in a day, you'll start to feel it. Uh, exercise doesn't have to just be weightlifting or stretching. There's so many different kinds. Yoga is important. Walking is important. Cardio, strength training, all of those are important. And I would also stress that exercising your mind is important. Socially, through meditation, reading, All of those things are key to your health. You know, you've emphasized, and you're correct, we need to do reasonable amounts of movement, exercise, uh, make it as social as possible. But are there any types of exercise or people working out too hard or too long that damage the muscles? Absolutely. So part of exercise is breaking muscle and bringing it back, right? We eat healthy we rest and our muscle regenerates as it's supposed to and you get stronger, you get faster. But of course, if you take that to an extreme end, whether you all of a sudden increased your exercise intensity, right? so you don't have to go long, you just did it much harder than you normally would, or you went much further than you normally would, that can lead to muscle breakdown and that can be quite dangerous. That condition is called rhabdomyolysis with muscle breakdown and that can damage your kidneys. So that's something that we want to avoid. Nothing should be done all of a sudden. If you have muscle diseases, you should also talk to your doctor. Certain exercises that damage muscle in a non-healthy way uh, can also hurt your disease. So it's important to consider that as well. Lastly, if you're going for extreme exercise like ultramarathons, Ironman, really pushing yourself, you have to be really careful about secondary effects with electrolyte imbalances, making sure you're hydrating properly. And uh, it requires a lot of diligence and buildup over time. What if you've got a bad knee or a bad shoulder or your joints just, uh, you know, almost arthritic? How does that affect things? That's definitely a barrier for lots of people, uh, right? If we're in pain, if we can't move like we normally do, it definitely affects the way we move and exercise. What I would recommend is getting to a healthy weight as best as you can to start moving in a way that reduces pain. So that might mean getting the weight off your joints, whether that's swimming, biking, like those are low impact exercises, maybe an elliptical. Uh, These kinds of exercises will take that weight off the joint, allow you to get your heart rate up and get that exercise in, get that benefit from the muscle signals, the movement uh, that will hopefully in the future, maybe even improve some of the pain that you feel. This is such a big issue, and it is so expensive in our healthcare system that we're going to keep Dr. Bai for more encouragement to move so that we can prevent the number one health issue in the world. That's next on the Human Side of Healthcare. Stay with us. 
The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Salman Bai, neurologist at UT Southwestern Medical Center and on the faculty of the Institute of Exercise and Environmental Medicine at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital, Dallas. For many of us, we don't move because our joints hurt. And that's where we pick up. How can we take pressure off of our joints and still move? So is swimming good, especially if you have upper or lower joint problems? Absolutely. That weightlessness that you feel from swimming is a great way to exercise multiple muscles uh, from a strength standpoint to get some stretching in and to also work your cardiovascular system. So you mentioned cardiovascular. So you exercise your heart, and then we do normal physical exercise. Should one take priority over the other? I think for the general audience, affecting both of them is very important. And when we're doing cardiovascular health, you know, you normally don't have to draw the line and say, hey, I'm working my heart out today. I'm just doing aerobic exercise. Because if you're walking up a hill, your muscles are getting some benefit. If you're swimming, your heart and your muscles are getting some benefit as well. I think the distinguishing factor that sometimes people use are, should I be lifting weights or should I just be doing cardio? And research has shown that both of them have benefit and different kinds of benefit. So I would recommend finding a healthy balance between the two so that you can reap both of those benefits. Well, you just brought up another great point. <laughs> you're, you're, uh, you're a wealth of these zingers. These are tweetables. You know, uh, Oprah had her <laughs> tweetables. Man, we've got multiple tweetables from Dr. Bai here. <laughs> myths. Let's talk about myths for a second because you just sure. demythed something. And it's almost like if you talk to anybody, doesn't matter, put 20 people in a room and ask them about what's the best diet. You're going to get 40 different yeah. opinions, right? So what yeah. other demyths do you have that you could give us about exercise? Uh, one, you know, in exercise, we talk about no pain, no gain. I think that is definitely false. You want to be in a comfortable place, just pushing your limits and getting the benefit. Imagine if you're starting exercise fresh and you push yourself too hard. Well, you're going to be walking around funny. You may feel very sore for a week and then not like what that did to your body. So I would always say take it easy and build up over time. Patience is key with exercise. That's a great one for sure. No pain, no gain, right? If it doesn't hurt, <laughs> I'm not doing any good. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's, it, you know, it's, it's drilled into us. But I think uh, especially for us who are starting exercise fresh or after a long period of not exercising, you really got to take it easy because the biggest setback you'll have is getting a little injury that hopefully is, just a one-time thing, but it can become a nagging issue. Which leads us to yoga, stretching, just general loosening up. Yoga has become so popular over the last couple of decades. Is it good for us? That, that my mom has been harping on that for the longest time. I enjoy running and doing triathlons, and she always told me, do some yoga. And I used to say, well, I don't, I don't have the time for it. But, of course, I got the time because I would injure myself. Uh, and I think yoga is very important, not only for your mind, where you get to focus on your body, which we often don't do during the day. Focus on your breathing, help release some stress, and then lengthen and stretch your muscles. And that part is very important because all the activities that we do, right, where we're sitting on our computer hunched over, the front of our chest is getting tight. 
our head starts to droop forwards, we start to bend our chest and arms towards the computer. We're not stretching our backs. Same thing with walking and sitting. We get muscle tightness that then leads to issues. So it's very important that we're stretching because these issues can get better. And if you, if you don't address them early, they become chronic conditions that then, right, you, you go to the doctor and you might end up with interventions that you could have prevented, like surgery. Absolutely. I was going to say, if you don't do that stretching then and you keep paining for gain, it's only a matter of time until they're going to be coming to see you, right? That's right. Let's talk about losing weight. And mm-hmm. I, know, I know that you're not an orthopedist, but uh, muscles obviously intertwine with, from your perspective, losing X percent of body weight. What is that worth to us? Well, that is a very difficult thing to do. And, you know, I think one focus should be don't focus on the number. If you just exercise, you will get benefit. The second thing is if you happen to start losing weight in a healthy way, that's even better. But don't get discouraged when you don't lose weight. It's very hard to lose weight, and it's even harder to keep it off. So exercise for the sake of exercising, and let losing weight be a side effect of that. There's two parts of the coin there, right? There's exercising, and then there's also nutrition, which we often neglect. And, of course, there's diets that are better than others, but I think there's no one-size-fits-all. The way that I try and keep it simple for my patients and family is to say, eat till you're just about full, but not fully full. Eat a colorful diet, right? So different things, fruits, veggies, grains. Keep your uh, meat intake low and eat food that goes bad, right? So you want to eat food that's fresh, minimally processed. And doing these kinds of things, of course, there's several other things to keep in mind. But watching your nutrition, watching your exercise can then help you lose weight and hopefully keep it off. You know, as we go through life, obviously we age. We go to the 50s, 60s, 70s. Can you explain to us, as we age, what happens to our muscles? Absolutely. So unfortunately, our muscles, just like the rest of our body, we age. Your muscles age. And when they age, they become smaller. They may become more brittle. Your joints feel that effect as well. And that is a bit of a cycle, Right? When your muscles don't feel fully healthy, you may feel like you don't want to exercise because it hurts. That then can lead to balance issues, weakness, falls, pain that affect your quality of life. The best way that we can counteract that is to do that resistance strength exercise as well as aerobics. Those two things are very important. And then again, I'll harp on that nutrition part. Eating healthy will help keep your weight in check which will minimize how much fat gets into the muscles and your overall well-being. Is there any way we can reverse that? You know, as we get older, if we have hair, it turns gray. And then is there any way that we can demyth what was just said? Uh, no, there's no magic fix to it, unfortunately. If you find one, definitely let me know. But I think the big picture is that it's, it's an inevitable part of our lives, but we can slow it and we can age gracefully, right? Aging doesn't mean that, hey, my, everybody I know has diabetes, everyone has joint pain, everyone just is basically sitting around. Uh, that doesn't have to be you. This starts when you're in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s. All of those lead to that old age. And if you're taking care of yourself early, you can help slow down and prevent some of those things when you're older. That doesn't mean that if you're already 60 and 70, you should give up. I think getting outdoors, getting some fresh air, 
exercising and moving can also help you have the benefits and slow some of those issues. You know, I've got friends that stand at their desk. I think even Thomas stands at his desk. What is the value of standing at a desk? Oh, I think it's, you know, I, I switched over to it and I try to use it when I can. Initially, it led to fatigue and me feeling a little bit tired. Different muscles were being activated. But once I got used to it, I realized that, one, I'm moving more, so it's easier for me to just start walking, to go do something else. It also helps me stay focused more. You know, I think if you really pay attention during the workday, you'll realize that sometimes you start slumping, and you'll slump more and more and more. The posture gets worse. Uh, you're slower at work. You feel groggy. Uh, standing, I think, helps really prevent that. Thank you, Dr. Bai. Great tips on moving our muscles. Steve, I am never going to forget, sitting is the new smoking. Absolutely. You're so right. You know, Thomas, I'm going to pivot a little bit now. We're going to talk about a new topic that's coming up, compassionate fatigue. I bet many of our listeners don't even know what I'm talking about. Well, then let's find out. And no better than Sherry Cusimano, Director of Community Education and Clinical Development at Medical City Green Oaks Hospital. No stranger to our show. Welcome back, Sherry. And let's get started by explaining what is compassionate fatigue. Sure. That is what it sounds like, right? Caring for others when you have literally burned yourself out in doing that. And there are several ways that can happen. The most loving, compassionate, and empathic people are probably the most vulnerable to this syndrome. One of the factors is secondary traumatic stress or vicarious trauma. It is that feeling of feeling stressed out and traumatized yourself by watching somebody else get traumatized or hearing somebody else's traumatic story. And I, I imagine most of us can identify with that. If that goes on for too long, you can actually get to a state of burnout, which is a term most of us are somewhat familiar with. And that's more of a chronic condition, right? That's when you just feel like, okay, there's nothing I can do. This is beyond me. And when you look at those two things together, that's what we call overall compassion fatigue. I think a lot of people think of this, Steve, more in terms of like the nurses caring for patients with COVID-19, certainly going through compassion fatigue, caring for others, watching the pain of others, and being limited about what you can do about that. I think we also know that can happen with healthcare professionals in other areas, psychiatric staff, for example, or first responders, law enforcement, uh, dealing with things like 9-11. Remember when we were going through that and the pictures on TV, and um, I imagine many people felt some compassion fatigue or at least secondary traumatic stress just from viewing that over and over again, all that human suffering. And so that's the syndrome we're talking about is compassion fatigue. Sherry Cusimano from Medical City Green Oaks. This is such a broad topic. If you have a special needs child or taking care of a parent or COVID has come to visit, all of the above apply. And we'll continue this conversation with Sherry right after this quick break. 
We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environments. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. Thanks for joining us on the human side of healthcare. We are talking about compassionate fatigue. It's the fatigue that naturally sets in when providing extended care to a loved one or a patient. This is Steve Love talking with Sherry Cusimano, who is the Director of Community Education and Clinical Development at Medical City Green Oaks Hospital. Are there any key symptoms or red lights that go off that kind of indicate, hey, you better probe a little further? You know, yeah, there certainly are. The the symptoms of compassion fatigue are really very similar to, they're pretty much like PTSD, right? Because what happens is the person has, they end up being on alert all the time. And so they have more adrenal glands, transmit a lot of cortisol, which is what your body does when you're under stress that prepares you for fight or flight for the threat in your environment. It gives you the energy you need to deal with the stressor. And when that goes on for a long time, you have a ton of cortisol and adrenaline going through your body. So when you think about that, if you know anything about what those uh, hormones do, you get a sense of what some of the symptoms would be. The person gets real almost on edge, hyper alert, hyper vigilant, sometimes even snappy, irritable, tired, can get depressed, tearful. So all of those things are the things that you would look for in somebody suffering from compassion fatigue. So let's say that for our listeners to really understand this, they note those symptoms. So they say... We think this person may have some compassion fatigue. What should they then do? I think it's important to just ask the person, how are you doing? Tell me what's going on in your life. Just start a conversation. I mean, we're not talking about a something that there should be a lot of uh, stigma around. Just to say to the person, When I would call my mom, I would say, how are things going? I know it must be tough dealing with Jim, my father, the stepfather at the time, getting ill. Are you getting any sleep? I would just ask her questions like that. Are you getting any sleep? If you live close to the person, now, of course, we live in a COVID world still, right? And hopefully people are still aware of that. But you can still talk to somebody via FaceTime or Zoom, or if you're both vaccinated, you may be able to uh, get together in person and talk, but ask the person, how are you doing? Are you getting enough sleep? Are you getting out at all? Is there anything I can do to help? If you know some resources that might be available, and this is one of the reasons why I think it's It's an important topic right now is that some of the resources that used to be available may not be. Like some of the places that used to take people in for respite may not be operating right now. I don't know. So you'd have to check in and find out 
but talk to them about any resources that you might know of that would be available to kind of ease the stress in their situation a little bit. So I would ask them about that. I would ask them about how they're feeling. Are they getting getting out and about at all? Because that can be another thing is with my mom, you know, she could hardly get out of the house. She finally was able to get in-home care and able to get out a little bit, and that was just everything for her. So just real practical kinds of, of uh, questions and conversation with that person to determine if that might be what's going on. And you, if the symptoms are there, you're probably seeing them. You know, if they seem jumpy, if they're tearful, and I'm, I mean, maybe just a comment about that. You know, you've been under a lot of stress for a long period of time. Be gentle with yourself. So let me give you uh, a little Q&A here. Let's assume uh, that you're a parent and you've been at home a lot with your kids because they've been doing virtual right. school. And you've been That's doing right. this for a year now. And you say, I'm really not a school teacher. I love my children. I have true compassion, right. but I am really fatigued doing this virtual school. Is that a form of compassion fatigue? It definitely could be. You love your kids. You want to help them out. Uh, especially some of the kids have really struggled with the virtual learning and some of the losses that came with the lack of in-person instruction. I had one friend who talked about some of the depression that her kiddo was going through. And it had to do with the fact that he wasn't going to be able to graduate in person. And so all of a sudden, you know, he quit participating in classes. He got very depressed. She got very worried about him. She was torn between work and home. She was trying to help him through those things. And yes, I think it was a very, very stressful time. And I do believe she went through a bit of compassion fatigue. And I think many of the parents staying home with their kids are probably going through that. Yes. Trying their best to help. You know, you just touched on the question I was going to ask, and I'm glad you did. And I hope our listeners picked up on that. You were describing some of the symptoms of compassion fatigue. People sometimes uh, aren't getting enough sleep. Sometimes they seem irritable. Sometimes they cry. You know, maybe all of those are symptoms, but if you see a medical professional, they may determine that you've got a severe depression problem. So we right. want to be careful uh, and not uh, overlook depression and call it compassion fatigue. That's right. That's right. And even if it is compassion fatigue and not a major depressive disorder, you still may need professional help getting out of it. Because, you know, depending on your life history, it may be a difficult thing to pull yourself out. You may need some counseling or medication to really pull out of that situation. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. I was, of course, thinking about this because I knew we were going to be talking about it. And I was thinking about another example where compassion fatigue 
occurs, and that's in work settings where there may be a culture of a lot of bullying. And you'll hear people talk about, oh, it was really tough to watch, you know. And in fact, I can give you a personal example. I was in a, a work setting, and we're talking about eons ago. Certainly not where I'm at now. I love it. I've been here forever. But uh, I have been in a work setting before where the, it was the um, Genghis Khan School of Management, I think, and it was a joke among all of us who's going to be eating for breakfast today. But there were days when, you know, some of us would would literally go back to our office and cry because we knew that one of the peers that we worked with was going through something really horrible in the workspace. Um, there is uh, bullying within the schools, and it doesn't just impact the person who's doing the bullying or the victim. It also impacts the people who see it, and that's that vicarious traumatic stress syndrome I was talking about. So this, this is a topic that's really relevant right now everywhere, I think. And I think with the pandemic going on and maybe being cut off from some of the things that support our mental health normally or support us in our lives normally, uh, it, it can be even more challenging. Like they say on the airplanes, you have to remember those. <laughs> you have to put your own mask on first before you can help others. Thank you, Sherry Cusimano from Medical City Green Oaks. Great to have you back on the human side of healthcare. Steve, what's next week? Ah, next week's going to be a great show. We're going to dedicate almost the entire show to talking about women that are pregnant, thinking about getting pregnant, have delivered babies, and the impact of COVID-19. With a special emphasis on should you get the vaccine. Next Sunday on the Human Side of Healthcare.